All right, y'all, before we get into the episode, just a quick disclaimer. Nothing about what you're about to hear should you actually take as any sort of medical or scientific advice. This is the Pop Apologist podcast. We are solely for the purpose of creating entertainment at its most mediocre. Um, So we are not here to provide any sort of legal, medical, scientific, you know, guidance, okay? Everything you're about to hear, it's just to entertain you, and that is all. So... Have fun, listen, don't sue us. Love you, bye. You guys, she's back by popular demand. Our sister, Mm -hmm. Ashley, she's come back to Pop Apologist weeks later to discuss with us all things midwifery, pregnancy, natural birth, postpartum, any and all questions you guys have. Ashley, welcome back to our podcast. Do you, did you miss us? Yeah. The prodigal's daughter returns. <laughs> did you actually miss us? Did you think about us all the time? I do think about you two all the time. Oh, that's not true. Very flattering. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like bullshit to me. But Ashley, what's going on? Before we dive into all things, you know, birthing people. Would love to hear how you're doing since you've been on the pod. Has your career exploded? Are you now a world-renowned skincare expert? Have you been- I definitely have more people DMing me for skincare advice, which is great. I think your followers like are really cute. Like- Well, what's so funny is that my like sweet BFF coworker follows you and I'm like, okay, now she's going to like fall in love with my other sisters more than me, which, you know, makes me a little self-conscious. So just don't be funnier than me, Ashley. Okay. Well, and I, I like literally, I was gonna say like your followers have really cute kids. We were just discussing that, <laughs> oh, like in yeah. my feed, I've seen, yeah, yeah, a lot of your followers have really cute kids. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I don't know what I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, how boring. Let's move on. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> That's what we should say. <laughs> Love our followers. I'm glad they have cute kids. No one gives a shit. Some of them okay, have really Ashley. cute pets too. Wait, well, okay. <laughs> And people even care less about that. Um, what? <laughs> Wait, does actually, this mean the Corgi episode isn't? There, there is no Corgi episode in the works, although we do love Cedar Phineas. I think Your all dog, of the followers yeah. who want a Corgi and a dog-based episode should DM Lauren repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> you, I will leave actually, that in. I will not edit that out. But if I receive a bunch of DMs requesting a dog episode, this podcast will be over. That's my only threat. <laughs> Oh I think we God. should definitely be we're we're kind of like doing this and like uh like uh yeah I guess we're I mean if we wanted to like do like we're kind of like doing this in order of my interest like except for the dogs like you know we, we should have done a dog-based episode and then we should have done like the skincare and then oh my gosh the no one cares episodes. about dogs <laughs> I mean some people do here's the thing some people definitely do and I do love Cedar Phineas, but it is just, it's not what the pop apologists okay, are I'm just gonna inter- about. Wait a second. I'm just going to interject Mark Zuckerberg style and be like, this claim is disputed. Billions <laughs> of people care about dogs a lot more but, than they care about people, actually. Here's the thing, Ash. We are not the arbiters of dogs, okay? Okay. That's true. Just to Mark Zuckerberg I- you one more time. <laughs> Hey, you guys, before we get back to the episode, we just wanted to talk to you about natural pet food. Have you ever... Con- no, I'm just kidding. We don't have a dog. Hey, quick thing. We're going to talk about pedigree. 
Okay, uh, Ashley. Okay, yeah. Back to the matter at hand. Get a farmer's dog sponsorship. I want like a ten percent cut at least. No, I'm oh going to be reselling gosh, no it. On, I'm going to be reselling it on eBay, Ashley. <laughs> okay. This is what you would do. Okay, okay. Let's talk about pregnancy. Okay, <laughs> wait. So, so first of all, I just want to say before we talk about anything pregnancy related, after the skincare episode we did, I got a lot of skincare questions. That was great. Like, I love talking about skincare informally. As far as pregnancy related topics go, I'm not really at liberty to reply to private follow-up questions as much since I'm actually in this area an actual professional and a licensed healthcare provider in my state and so it kind of puts me into a tricky area if people Mm -hmm. ask me one-on-one questions in private so I won't be able to do that and then what can can people take the advice that you give today as sound medical advice from their primary care physician? And can they call you their primary care right. physician? And they mark you down as that. Listening to this podcast actually now creates an obligation for me to like give care for them. No, I'm just <laughs> No, so, so, no. So yeah, that. And then the other thing I want to say, and this is just sort of a general disclaimer. I'm a midwife. I do deliveries for women at home. And so I'm speaking from the point of view of someone who, and that's what I've had 12 years experience doing. I'm speaking from the point of view of someone who works with women who want like a a natural experience with as few medical interventions as possible. And so I'm going to be speaking from that point of view, but I want to really strongly state that I know that there are definitely a significant proportion of women who don't have any objection to medical intervention, who aren't necessarily set on a natural birth. And that's fine. And I don't want anything I say to be construed as like judging those birth experiences or those women. But I'm just going to be speaking from my perspective, which is a little bit, it's just focused on natural birth and promoting that. Okay. I thought you told me that anyone who had a medically induced birth or took an epidural was a weak little bitch. Is that not the case? <laughs> so first of all, so first of all, I respect our mother way too much to any, say anything sideways about anyone who has cesareans by choice. So never, no, honestly, women, here's the thing about cesarean birth is women who deliver by cesarean in some ways they have to be, they have to do, be more strong than women who deliver naturally. The difference is, is that they're, the way that they have to, the way that they have to be strong and like the recovery they have to go through, that mostly happens after the delivery when there's less support. So, so yeah, I have right. 100% respect wow. for cesarean mothers. But you did say Pitocin is for pussies, right? You have that on a t-shirt. You have that on a t-shirt. I've seen you this wear this claim t-shirt. claim is disputed. I never, ever said anything like that. But you know what? The funny thing is, is like Lauren will tell you, Lauren and Chandler will tell you, I'm like one of the, yeah, like, my therapist will tell you okay being judgmental being a judgmental person like sometimes that's something I struggle with probably the one area of life (laughs) I don't struggle with that is anything related to birth because I've just seen so much experienced so much yeah yeah I like honestly that's probably the one area of life where I can like approach women like like just like approach anyone just completely non-judgmentally is anything related to like pregnancy or birth um, it's actually very much true. And I, uh, yeah, I can totally second this. You've never said anything like that. And you're very non-judgmental when it comes to birthing, which is actually shocking giving every other part of life. Right. Yeah. Like, don't tell me about your pet care choices. They're less <laughs> optimal, but. <laughs> yeah. You definitely once told me that uh, you think that women should only have long hair. So there's definitely like <laughs> not a precedent for non-judgment. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, before we dig in, I do think Chandler, you and I should answer a listener question. Okay. Yeah. Because the listener did ask if you and I would want a natural birth. I think it'd be a fun question to start off with. Yeah. I'm going to say ahead. that I don't think that's in the cards for me. I know my will as a person. I know my limits and I know my will. I don't think that I'm a person with that, that great of will. So I don't think that's something I'm going to do. I might, I don't know. I might have a mighty change of heart, but I probably won't. So no, it's okay. going to be a no for me, dog. I would say for my answer that if a flower were to grow within the garden of my womb and I was a woman who, you know, would bring forth chi- a child. Mm-hmm. I, If that were the case for me personally at some time in the future, I would actually love to do a natural birth in like a stunning five-star hospital. Or I'm sorry, finding stunning a five-star hotel, hotel near a hospital. You're absolutely you disgusting. Could have best of both, or whatever. Maybe not in a hotel, in an Airbnb. I don't know. Anyway, I would love to do it, but right next to a hospital just in case anything went wrong. Hotels everywhere, beware. Okay, beware. <laughs> They don't have to be I've there. I've done hotel before. I've done hotel first week. Look, you don't have to ask, like, you do not have to ask permission from the hotel to have a birth in there any more than you have to well, ask permission from the hotel to engage in the activities that, like, lead to I, eventually. I'd like, like to propose That's just something you're allowed to do. I'm a, I would like to propose legislation to, to make hotels have to ask more intrusive questions of their guests because I don't want to be staying anywhere that was just a birth. More ways silicon and big tech are just like. <laughs> Yeah, honestly. <laughs> Seriously. It's, a, it's such a good point, Ashley. No wonder she works for Mark Zuckerberg. No wonder. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, Ashley, speaking of us, back to us, can I ask you to quickly just give us a small little tidbit about why you got into midwifery? Was it because you had these gorgeous younger siblings and that you were just so inspired by their births and their upbringing yes. that you just wanted to see more children like us brought into the world? Absolutely not. It was more <laughs> about like, it was actually more about like preventing, like, 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 in preventing the sense children? That, like, well, no, in the sense that like, I love kids, but like, I thought like it was interesting because I was on a hike one day and like in the little guidebook that I was reading during the hike, it said that, you know, I was identifying plants on the hike because that was one of the hobbies I developed, like not being popular in high school. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and yeah, no, I, yeah, no, unlike Courtney, people did not invite me to parties and stuff. So I like, I, I had to develop like interest from our bookshelf. And so, <laughs> um, so anyway, so I was identifying plants on this hike that, I was on and one of the plants was actually Queen Anne's lace. It's a very common, you know, people consider it a weed in North America. And I was reading in the guidebook that women, and there's actually a, a version that grows in Europe. There's a version that grows in North America. And I was reading in the guidebook that women could use the seeds of this plant to prevent, to prevent pregnancy. And that just blew my mind. I think that just blew my mind because I, you know, I think I just had a rather conventional education with the idea that fertility control was something that only started happening in the 1960s or whenever, mm-hmm. you know, conventional birth control was. So it just blew my mind that, you know, that plants were used for that purpose. And so that, and I had always wanted to work in healthcare. And so that kind of just led to a development in my interest in midwifery. 
Okay, so wait, let me bridge the gap a little bit. So you learned that a common weed could prevent pregnancy and that showed you what? That there's like a lot of power and natural, like very holistic things that are basically like no one makes money from, so no one talks about it. Well, yeah, sort of, exactly. Well, it's sort of, and it's just more about the fact that like I kind of knew I wanted to work in healthcare, like healthcare seems, and I knew I wanted to work with women, but I didn't, we actually told, do you remember the story we told in the last podcast I was on about how like, you know, mom talking about like the lady from our church group who like, and remember she was saying like, she gave birth in a bathtub. Oh, right, right, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't really know about like midwifery about, I mean, I knew about it, but I thought it was like something that was just like relegated to Little House on the Prairie, you know? But then once once I found out it was like, you know, like honestly, like the idea of going into a healthcare-based profession where I would work with just with women, like that really appealed to me. So yeah, and I love like, you know, and it eventually developed into like a specialization in like first time mothers. And I don't know, I love it. Like it's definitely was my calling for sure. That's amazing. Okay, Ash. So let's kind of go back to basics with midwifery. So there's a doula and then there's a midwife. Can you explain to people the difference between the two? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So a midwife and a doula, they can work together just like a doula can work with a doctor or other professional, but they're just two totally different things. Now, a doula is something anyone can become after like a weekend training course. It doesn't require a whole lot of skill and specialization. Mm-hmm. It's basically where you learn to be um, an emotional support person for somebody who's experiencing childbirth. So it's like where you learn to like, okay, here are the things you could you could say or do to help support a woman in labor. That's mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a brief process to become a doula and then you could start attending births and doing all of the things. Now to become a midwife like that, that took me like, I think around seven years to do like my bachelor's degree in midwifery, do all the clinical training. And that's where you actually become like a medical primary care provider to pregnant women. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Anybody could be a doula just in the sense that like, you know, like I've attended births like plenty of versus a doula where I'm there not to actually be the medical care provider. Like I'm there to, um, but you don't do that now. Right. I'll I'll do it every so often now. Like I'll do it just because uh, like, for example, like sometimes like I'll have a woman who wants to have a home birth, she's planning for a home birth and then a condition develops like, like something that would be, you know, like, like for example, she develops high blood pressure during pregnancy. Home birth is no longer considered safe. But we've developed a relationship mm-hmm. at that point. And so it would be common at that point for me to, you know, for her to have me at her birth in in a labor coaching role instead of the midwifery. Got role. it. Okay. Here's my question for you. But as a doula, you're not offering any medical advice, correct? No, 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 yeah. no, no. As yeah. a doula, you don't do anything medical. You just leave that to the medical care. Got provider. it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Can you talk to us a little bit about your practice in general? And it's called a practice, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, my midwifery care practice. So my midwifery care practice, I started it after working for several different birth centers, working for several different home birth practices, you know, so I had seen a lot, but I started my own practice here in Corvallis, Oregon in 2015. And I developed a specialty in first time mothers. Okay, why is that? What? Like dad specializes in high conflict divorces. Yeah, Uh, you specialize in first time mothers. Why this? Why the specialization? 
you know, it kind of just grew organically. Like, like I didn't set out to specialize in first time mothers. You know, I noticed with midwives that happens a lot. It's like a certain type of woman or situation is attracted to us. And then we develop a specialty and not like, for Mm -hmm. example, there are midwives who specialize in breech births. Okay. And for whatever reason, like I just started working with a lot of first time mothers and having really great results with them and kind of developing a system to like really help them have their first birth like which is the the hardest birth for women it's the hardest birth for women typically right is the first birth an analogy I use and this is an analogy that I came up with one day is that to a certain degree having your first is like going into the splits for the first time you know it may take somebody six months of stretching to Mm -hmm. finally get their muscles accommodated to the point where they can go into the full split the cervical muscle is it's similar in the sense that like for a woman's cervix to fully dilate to the point where it can have a full grown term baby pass through it Mm -hmm. that always takes more time than like second third fourth fifth first right I mean you know, it's just that it is the most for your cervix, your first birth of a full term baby is the most it is the most intense. And so I just developed a specialty helping women navigate that first birth. And that became really important to me. Right. And so obviously, with your practice, you know, you try to avoid a cesarean section, a, a C-section. And obviously, they're there though for a reason. And they're important and they're a lever that people might need to pull if things are not going well. Can you talk yeah. about why it's so important? Why are you stressed, you know, trying to avoid a cesarean with your first birth? Yeah. So there's one main reason. And the reason is that cesareans are linked with death for the women. So each, you know, this is this fact will come as a shock to a lot of people. And it's not a very pleasant fact. And, and you're of, saying, sorry, I just want to repeat, you you said that cesarean sections are linked to death, like more likely, right? Yeah, for the woman. Yeah. And mm-hmm. like this, I want to state a really important fact that a lot of people don't know. And it's really sad, but it's like, it uh, should be common knowledge. But among all the industrialized countries in the world, like all the what are, you know, considered colloquially like first world nations, the United States, I think is dead last in terms of maternal mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. you know, like it's our country has a really bad maternal mortality rate. And one of those reasons is that we do so many surgical deliveries compared to other nations. Like, for example, country like Iceland has like a 15% cesarean rate. This country has around a 33% cesarean rate. Wait, and, one out of every three births is by C-section in the, in the U.S. hospitals. Yes, in U.S. Yes, hospitals. Absolutely. Really? Yeah. And every cesarean you do triples the mother's risk of death. So it's like when you look at somebody like our mom who like survived like six, like survives like, you know, five, five yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really you know, like by the time that she was having her last cesarean, she was at such an increased risk of death. And thankfully, everything was fine. But yeah, every there's a limit for every woman's body into how many times you can cut through that little that many layers of muscle and tissue and put everything back together. And, wow. you know, for example, she's not going to have a massive hemorrhage and die. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is so interesting. I, I am sorry, I, but I was totally in disbelief. So I just did a quick Google and you're 100% spot on. It's 31% of, yeah. it's basically between, it's about thir- between 30 and 35. That's like, 
shocking. Can you hypothesize as to why that is? Like, are is it a doctor's choice? Do doctors pressure more women to have cesarean section, C-sections? Like, what? where do you think this stems yeah. from? So this is super multifactorial. Things that are going on is, like, first of all, like, uh, if you look at, like, and this is one of the reasons I became a midwife. It's, like, if you look at, like, the number of midwives, like, if you look at the countries that are the best um for in terms of like outcomes for women like they have way more midwives than doctors attending births and there's a high ratio of midwives to women whereas like if you look at the US we have very low rate of you know of midwives to women and like you know for example an obstetrician i think that they're you know obstetricians are great the medical school is obviously no joke it's but the thing is obstetrics that's a surgical specialty midwifery is the specialization yeah they're surgeons i mean that's amazing i mean that's one of the things the most amazing things your kid could ever become as a surgeon right but they're surgeons or podcaster or a pod or an amateur celebrity (laughs) gossip podcaster (laughs) right (laughs) right whereas like uh you know midwives what we specialize in is promoting normal birth like the normal process for the normal process to occur so, okay, that's that. I've never, I, I've never processed that before. Like, obviously, an OBGYN is a surgeon, but like, there's not really another, like, is there a doctor, is a gynecologist then just. Yeah, it's, it's one specialty. It's called OB, it's like one area they can choose is OBGYN. And obviously, some mm-hmm. of them don't do deliveries anymore. They just only do gynecology work. Yeah, but, right. So it's but, no matter, okay. so it's always your, and a gynecologist is always an OBGYN. Yes, yes. Got it. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is one specialty. But like, the thing is, there's a cascade of hormones that starts the labor process. It usually actually starts in the baby's lungs. And they trigger like an inflammatory chemical that starts like the labor process. And when that process like occurs, it's way easier for the woman's body to handle typically. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are reasons why sometimes inductions need to happen. Mm-hmm. But we have had in this country, like, you know, practices and things where like, you know, people were just getting induced at right at 39 weeks for no medical reason, like people getting induced, like women getting induced for reasons like, oh, my doctor's going out of town. So I want to get induced at 39 weeks. And that is triggering things, you know, that is triggering things like, I mean, you know, it's not, I mean, I mean, imagine they had like chemicals that they could inject in you that would make you sneeze. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not going to be quite the same as just like sneezing naturally on your Interesting. own. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. It's like a whole cascade of processes that happen. And the chemicals that they use to induce labor are like crude compared to the body's own natural processes. And like one thing that you'll find that's like super common is women will talk about the experience of like the contractions that are from induced labor versus the contractions from natural labor. And the contractions from natural labor are actually a lot easier to handle for most women. And that's because the Pitocin is being, you know, it's being secreted by their own brain and by the pituitary. And it's, it's basically uh, the Pitocin that they just, you know, if they run an IV in you, it doesn't actually cross the blood brain barrier. And so there's just, I mean, if you get it, we could get really deep into the weeds into the science of this, but basically like your body's own natural labor is there's going to be endorphins and things that your body has to help you handle that process. Interesting. And mm-hmm. in an induced labor, there's not going to be that sort of thing, which is why, you know, things like epidurals exist. And if you get an epidural, especially before a certain point, I mean, 
that just I think it almost doubles your risk of cesarean. Wait, if you say that again, so if you get a epidural too early, yeah, you probably will have to have a C-section if you're not far enough yeah. along. So one thing I would say is like obviously home birth is not for everyone. I'm assuming a lot of your listeners might plan to have a hospital birth. One thing, right? I, I mean, our sister Courtney not- had all hospital births. Our mom did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm the, I'm kind of the weird outlier in the family where I'm kind of interested in natural birth, obviously. But like one yeah. thing I would say is like if you go to a hospital, and this is something I've worked with women that I've worked as a doula for in the hospital. If you can wait until after six or seven centimeters to get your epidural, you'll be in a lot better place, statistically speaking, to accomplish your birth vaginally versus eventually needing a cesarean. Interesting. Right. So can you speak to like people who want to have a natural birth, obviously a lot of it's out of your control, but if you want to have, try and have that, like what can you do to yeah. have the best chances? Yeah. So one of the things, so I work with, my specialty is working with first time mothers to have that first birth naturally. So we do a whole lot of stuff. Some of it's controversial. Some of it's well accepted by the larger community. First thing we do that's not very controversial is we look at like mental preparation like Mm -hmm. i want mothers to be mentally preparing for the experience of labor and that honestly like that just looks like that just looks like a lot of times like that can take the form of like some sort of like mindfulness preparation because the thing is like when you're actually in labor you know like one thing i would compare it to is like you know there's various things it can be compared to but like one thing that i would compare it to that i think is a really good analogy is it's a little bit like running a marathon right Mm -hmm. and so if you're on mile two of the marathon and you're thinking wow this mile is really hard i'm not going to be able to run mile 24 it's going to be really hard for you to complete that process versus like if you just focus on the mile the steps the what's in front of you and you don't worry about what's coming on later in the process you know later on your body's going to give you runner's high it's going to give you a lot of more tools to cope with that process if you've done your so it's like it's a lot about it's a lot about like first of all the mental form is like mindfulness staying present not worrying about what's coming on later in the process staying where you are mentally and just handling the contraction that's in front of you instead of worrying about what's coming six hours later. Right. So that's one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thing number two is. Okay. Can we talk shaving for a second? You guys, I shave every day. I cannot even stand the slightest stubble. It's not my thing. It's not my journey. I need smooth, supple legs and arms. I sh- shave it all, baby. Um, so I shave every day and For me, it's been really tough to find a razor that I love. I have tried the expensive ones at the grocery store. I've tried the cheap ones. It it is all trash to me. Well, let me tell you about Athena Club razors, which I've just discovered. They are incredible. The thing I love about them is that, first of all, they're super cute. So they look super cute in my shower next to my expensive shampoo and conditioner. I mean, they complete the look and vibe of my shower. Second of all, they leave my legs moisturized, super smooth, and bump-free. This is what a gal wants out of razors. That's it. I have the blue one. I'm obsessed. I also love the shave foam. Truly, it just leaves your skin so soft, so hydrated, so smooth. 
Show your skin you care with the Athena Club Razor Kit. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code POP. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B.com with promo code POP for 20% off. I'm not sure what time it is in your world, but it's five o'clock in mine, baby. And you know what that means? That means it's time for a nice chilled glass of Pinot Grigio by Spade and Sparrows, my favorite wine brand. Okay, Spade and Sparrows was created by Caitlin of The Bachelorette and host of the Off the Vine podcast. Okay, so first of all, I love celebrities, so I would prefer to only drink and consume items created by celebrities. Also, I just love pulling the bottle out of my fridge. It just makes me feel chic. It makes me feel rich. It makes me feel hot. I just love Spade and Sparrow so much. It's truly such a great wine brand. They have a Pinot Noir. They have a Cap Sauve. They have a Rosé. What else could you want, baby? I absolutely adore Spade and Sparrows, and I know that when you try it, you will too. Spade and Sparrows is available in select liquor stores across Canada, as well as select Walmarts in California. It's also available online at spadeandsparrows.com. Enter code POP15 at checkout to receive 15% off your first purchase. Spade and Sparrows, you guys, it's a lifestyle. Along that same metaphor is athletic. One of the questions that I ask at almost every first prenatal visit I have is, did you play sports in high school? Now, I always feel like a hypocrite for asking this. Right. I'm like, also, you know that none of the sisters in our family, except for our brother, played sports. So it's like, we're going to be answering no to that question. Right. Well, that doesn't mean you can't. Okay. So I'll tell you the follow-up question, but like, Uh, I love to hear it when a woman says like, oh yeah, I played this speed sport in high school if somebody hasn't played sports in high school the question that I ask is like have you had much experience working out what if um, they what if they said they did ASB what how would you translate that skill they did student government like you know call your local surgeon now like just <laughs> no I'm joking I can make a kick-ass so, poster you know, I, I want to make I, I want to say like women even with like no athletic background give birth naturally every day with no problems but it is a good idea like well something I say all the time is that The pain of childbirth, the discomfort of childbirth, it's very similar to the discomfort of running a marathon, same analogy, versus like there's different types of pain our body can have. And the pain of birth is really similar to athletic pain where it can be extremely uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but it's also the result of a normal process happening normally. Right. It's like not even like it is pain technically, but it's it's just your body reacting rather than like your body being hurt. Yeah, it can be really uncomfortable, but it's not the same as like getting shot in the leg or right. having a shark attack or something. Like, yeah. It's a it's an actual process happening that your body is designed to handle. It's not an injury. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, so so the thing is women with athletics experience, it's great because they're um, accustomed somewhat to feeling that burn or feeling the pain of athleticism. And so if they can reframe childbirth in their head and then also exercise during the pregnancy, that not only promotes a healthy pregnancy, it's like they can carry that mindset into labor of like how to deal with the sensation of the contraction. Right. Is your slogan, no pain, no gain? Is that no baby, no pain, no baby? Actually, my slogan is like, please have a six pound baby. Okay. Yeah. I want to hear about- That's that's actually, I will say that's one of the more controversial aspects of my practice is that not all midwifery practices do, not all doctors do. Is like, I work a lot with the women I work with and I have a very good success rate. I have a huge, almost every baby, I I almost 
and I love it this way. I almost never see an eight pound baby, unlike many practices. I almost never see, we, we have six and seven pound babies here. And why and is that? Like, I love it. And the women I work with love it. Yeah. Right. I mean, but like, so what part do you play in <laughs> I that? Know how she's acting like she's like literally God. She's right. like, I give them all seven pounders right. and the women love it. I know. It's like, she's like slicing, well, you know, deli meat or something. We actually shoot for six pounds, but seven pounds is okay too. Which, which again, I feel like a hypocrite because I was a ten pound baby. Yeah, this this but... bitch is six one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I was a ten pound baby that caused this cesarean. Honestly, maybe that's why I do what I do now. Yeah, but, it's back. But yeah, so we focus on like okay, things that you can do during the pregnancy to control and help your baby be a more physiological or normal size. And it is true. Like honestly, babies are really not supposed to be nine and ten pounds. They really aren't. It, sometimes my, you can't control it, though. Sometimes if yeah. like, both parents are really tall, you know. Right, 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 right. And, like, for example, like, you know, I worked at a birth center. And, like, you know, like, I remember one of the women that came in there, like, you know, she was taller than me. She was, like, 6'3". Husband was also big. Yeah, it's a, but there's a difference, though, between, like, but that's the thing. Like, tall women like me are rare. Like, most women are, yeah, like, yeah. in the 5'1 to, like, 5'8 range. Yeah. It's not even just a matter of being tall. Like, even if you're tall, your the different openings in your pelvis may not necessarily be that much larger. Yeah. You know? And so, like, w- like having, if you can, like... Okay, but how do you can, control for that? Yeah. 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 So, I tell this is, and this is, you know, this is, like I, I say, like, this is a little bit controversial. And this is not something that everybody does. But like, I honestly believe that like the and I've seen results with this in my practice that encouraging women to, you know, focus on some food groups and not focus on other food groups has generally been helpful, like focusing, I say on the three pillars of your diet should be meats, fruits and vegetables. And yeah. then once you start adding in like, you know, like, especially like large amounts of dairy, large amounts of processed sugar, large, you know, these other uh, groups that, you know, are more common since the advent of like industrialized food systems, we start to see, I think, bigger and bigger babies because of that. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So you wouldn't even say it's an excess of calorie intake. It's Not more... This- yeah, well, and that part of it is too is like if you're eating meats, fruits, and vegetables, it's really, it's really like hard and not pleasant to like eat to overeat thousands like of extra to, calories. Yeah, yeah, totally. like with other foods, it's very easy to. Hmm. Right. Right. So okay, it's like you know, it's like I mean, I mean, I mean, we always have outliers like that freely banana girl who ate like forty bananas a day or something like that. But I, but it's like <laughs> most people, if they like. Uh, that was a YouTube reference, but like basically. Oh, we've talked about her on the pod before. Oh, okay. Don't you yeah. worry. Yeah. So, but, but like, honestly, like I, I do not do, I do not, I have not really encouraged like women to do like, you know, calorie controlling in my practice. I just say stick to meats, fruits, and vegetables as much as you can. If you're going to have like a treat meal, have it be like a once a week instead of like a once a day thing. And then yeah. that, that generally has been really helpful for controlling baby size. And, and does that also help with pregnancy symptoms as far as like sickness, that type of thing? You know, not necessarily. So who gets morning sickness and stuff? Like a lot of that is seems to be like genetic and related to like the specific, you know, like 
woman or her specific pregnancy as far as like how sick she's getting i can give you like if if your readers want and like obviously this isn't medical advice for your specific uh, situation but i can give some of the greatest hits advice i have about like controlling pregnancy this yes okay so first of all the best thing in the world let's go ahead and put a link to your show notes for this so constipation is huge with pregnancy tons of women get constipated with pregnancy it comes from various factors including like the progesterone which slows down digestion and here can you drink coffee when you're pregnant this is something i'm yeah. already you can yeah. so I, I can have yeah, my... one to two cups a day yeah okay oh thank god so 300 milligrams i believe i have to look that up but i believe 300 milligrams is the pregnancy safe limit for caffeine okay okay great fantastic but yeah. Yeah, but pregnancy constipation is really common. Best supplement in the world for that is natural calcium magnesium, or if your constipation isn't defeated by that, just the plain magnesium. And that's the dissolvable magnesium powder that you put into water and drink. And I've literally never encountered a case of pregnancy constipation in my years in practice that wasn't solved by that. Do you know that I carried natural calm with me across the country when I moved to New York? Because I love it so much. Yeah, you you put me onto it and I like I I use it somewhat frequently. I don't have constipation issues, but I actually feel like it helps me sleep. And I but I it's so expensive. I didn't want to trek it. I didn't want to buy new when I got here. So I I took it through security. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Right. Anyways, wait. Thing number two is a maternity belt. So these are really great. So let me just give some background on this. Is this so, like a waist trainer for your baby? No, it's like, no. so it might, I guess it might look like that to some people, but let me explain. It has nothing to do with like appearing smaller or something okay. like that. So the bones in your pelvis during pregnancy, there's a hormone called relaxin that spikes during the nine months that you're pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. And this hormone is really important because what it does is it loosens, like if you look at a woman's pelvis, it's made of like several different bones that are attached. And what this does is this loosens the connectivity between all of those bones, right? Okay. Okay. That's fantastic for the day or two that you're in labor, but it's really miserable the rest of the time just because it makes it hard to walk. It what does it, it feel to... like? It, it's, it literally feels like your pelvis is like, like, what does it feel like? Yeah. It just, it feels like, I think it feels like for women, it just feels like walking is more painful. There's like more instability. Mm-hmm. There's just like more... So- so kind of um, why you yeah. hobble more when you're pregnant? Yeah, yeah, or waddle. Yeah, exactly. Waddle, yeah. And so what these, what this does, like the belt does is like, and also you have like this, you know, growing, you know, the growing bump. And so what this is, it's kind of like a, an analogy I've used before is like most women with like even average to large breasts would not even consider going for a run without a jogging bra because yeah. it would just be too uncomfortable. Right. This is kind of like a jogging bra for your pelvis and like your bump where it like it gives your bump a little bit of uplift and support and because of the horizontal it's like you know usually they're like four or five inches wide and they're just like there you put them on your hip you put it on your hips and they're elastic and stretchy and you velcro them and then it just holds your hip bones and your pelvic bones together and it kind of combats that hormone introduced instability and it mm-hmm. makes walking and moving around more comfortable so the pregnancy belt, it's like, I, I really like the analogy about boobs. Like if you have big, if you have larger boobs, you would not like, you, it's impossible for you to not wear a sports bra. It's more comfortable for you to wear a sports bra. So it's like, yeah, if it's, you're gonna go jogging, yeah exactly. Really. It's like, it's compression that makes like everything more comfortable. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it does. That's what the pregnancy belt does to, you know, so, and you can wear, like, you know, obviously talk to your own provider, but like for women I've worked with, like 
you know, even some, some women have even worn like a pregnancy belt and it's not like over the middle part of your belly. It's like actually lower, like it's just lower on your hip bones. Yeah. Um, that is, you know, they've even, some of them have even worn it at night to sleep. The next thing is like to decrease pregnancy related discomforts. Let's get into nausea in a minute, but as far as like, it's really common to get like shooting pelvic pains or like shooting sharp pains during pregnancy. You basically have to change how you move during pregnancy. One thing I tell women is like, you have to move, start moving in slow motion. Like where it's like okay. the average woman, you know, not pregnant, she can just hop out of bed, right? Yeah. You can't, once you're pregnant, you can't really just hop out of bed like once you're pregnant or you, you know, or if you do, it can cause like these spasms of pain, you know, getting out of bed or getting into or out of your seat, like that can be a process. Like you need to like sit up slowly, you know, do all of these things a little bit in slow motion. And that is because, okay, so a typical uterus with no baby in it, just some, just a woman who's not pregnant, it's about the size of a golf ball and it's tucked behind her pubic bone. Really? It's not even, yeah, it's so tiny. It's so tiny, right? Is that where my IUD so, is? Is that where my yeah. IUD is? Okay. Uh, yep. And so that, so, so it's really tiny. And then obviously it grows to like the size of like a watermelon that's up underneath your lungs, right? Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. it's like the exact same ligaments that hold it in place when it's a tiny golf ball behind your pubic bone are the same ligaments that, the ligaments that hold it in place when it's a giant watermelon shape thing under your lungs yeah and so they spasm like those ligaments spasm Ugh. really easily with like quick movements or like you know certain types of things but all of this to say is like you know I work with a lot of women who are really athletic and a lot of them keep doing a lot of the athletic stuff through their second and third trimesters even it doesn't mean that you can't be active but it just means you have to change your body's you know moving biomechanics like temporarily to to come you know, to just make sure that you're not like aggravating the situation or like causing yourself undue. No, so wait, what time. kind of exercise do you recommend for a pregnant yeah. woman? So the ideal exercise, I think if I had to choose one is aerobic swimming because it's like you're okay. in a situation Laps, where it's basically. Like, yeah, it's like you're in a situation where the pressure of the water is providing, the water pressure is providing just, you know, complete support all around your stomach. And so you can, you know, really vigorously exercise while getting the support for the shape of your body. So that's really excellent. A lot of women do yoga. I mean, you know, just anything. I mean, honestly, anything that you really love that gets you hopping and popping and gets your heart rate moving is going to be helpful. So all of that is great. Obviously, like certain, I mean, people will ask me questions like, oh, it's like, bike riding safe for pregnancy and it's like you know the answer is usually like well if you never fall off your bike maybe. yeah <laughs> you know right. like, but the thing is like you just have to and like honestly one thing that's not safe for pregnancy is being totally sedentary I mean yeah. sitting in a chair for like 12 hours a day during your whole pregnancy I don't consider that safe mm-hmm. so like yeah mm-hmm. athleticism has its risk but it's worth it to be active during your pregnancy yeah okay so funny. My future sister-in-law, Kagan's twin sister, she recently gave birth and like literally like two weeks before she gave birth, she like did her last mountain biking ride and was like, last ride. Like she's That's so excellent. active the whole time. She's like That's so, so ripped. Excellent. That's so excellent. And like when you do that, you're not just like making your pregnancy healthier. You're making your future child healthier because you're sending them like the epigenetic signals. Because you know, do you guys know about epigenetics at all? I, I don't. So it's basically about like, okay, so all of us have like a certain genetic set of information in our body, but there's things where it's like, 
I mean, colloquially speaking, certain genes can be quote unquote turned on or turned off based mm -hmm. on the environment we're born into. Like, for example, somebody born into a famine state or something like that, like, you know, maybe certain genes or certain, you know, tendencies will be exaggerated or not, right? So when you exercise during your pregnancy, it's actually beneficial for your baby because it's like turning on or upregulating the things that will help them be healthier in the long term. Oh, very cute. Well, that's bad news for all of our listeners. Yeah, well, but... you know, we'll see. <laughs> Like my baby's going to want to work out about three times a week and that's it. <laughs> and then last one I'll give is my ultimate help for pregnancy nausea. Now, so this is a big one. This usually for most women is going to go away significantly by like 13, 14 weeks for most women. The biggest thing, you know, there's a whole list of things, you know, acupressure, like magnets, like Unisom, like all of these things you can try. I will tell you my most helpful thing for that is crackers. Now, and when I say crackers, I mean like having like, I usually suggest what are called Akma crackers, but really any cracker that you, wheat any thin? like whole wheat, yeah, like wheat thins would be fine too. Now, obviously this doesn't, yeah, this doesn't, I, I think so. Yeah. Like this doesn't fall on my, you know, list of recommended foods. But the thing I tell people about the recommended foods is like, it's fine to start eating like your pregnancy ideal diet in your second trimester. I mean, before that your baby is so small and like, if you need like to eat a lot of crackers to get through the first trimester pregnancy yeah. nausea that's just fine basically what you do is like you always carry these crackers with you you can set like an alarm bell on your phone to go off like every half hour or an hour and you basically just need to never have an empty stomach you need really? to eat a cracker yeah a big thing is like having them by your bedside table and eating the crackers before you even sit up in bed in the morning like eating a few crackers waiting five minutes and before you even get out of bed because if you just get out of bed and you have a totally empty stomach, like you're done, like it's, you're going to have pretty bad nausea. So it, 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 does it have to do with like your inner ear and then that type of nausea? Is that what triggers it? Because if, from the way you said it, like you need to have it before you've been set up in bed, like, is it triggered by movement or is it, or what does it cause? Obviously it's caused so by pregnancy, but like, yeah. I don't know if they've exactly, some people, some, I think some research leaks it to like HCG levels, the pregnancy nausea. But one thing that's pretty conclusive about nausea, one thing we know is that like, it gets into people get into a really like women they get into a really bad feedback loop with it because they don't eat because they're mm -hmm. feeling so nauseous like mm -hmm. a lot of women will lose weight during their first trimester because they're so nauseous they can't eat but yeah. not eating always makes it worse right and so if you're able to just always even just have a little tiny bit of food in your stomach a little tiny bit of rice a little bit of tiny bit of crackers like it can make the not it doesn't completely solve the problem but it makes life a lot more tolerable Okay. Brilliant. Wow. Okay. Another little ask people have while we're on the subject of just like giving out tips is how do you prevent tearing? I know we're fast forwarding now to when you actually give birth, but yeah. what are your thoughts there? Yeah. So it starts in pregnancy with like, you know, like I said, like, well, and this is my advice, talk to your own doctor and midwife about how you should eat in pregnancy. But I think it starts with like eating in pregnancy to manufacture a six or a seven pound baby instead of an eight or a nine mm -hmm. pound baby because it's mm -hmm. going to be easier not to tear with one of those babies that said you could still get a gnarly tear with like a six or a seven pound baby. yeah yeah so next thing is like not getting an epidural in labor and the reason that you want to have a natural birth to not tear is that if you're mobile and you can move around and you can change positions in my opinion it's a lot easier for you not to tear or tear in a severe way versus having an epidural, which means like you're immobilized and you're probably getting like coach pushing both things, like both of those things like lead to tearing. Wait, why does coach pushing? I don't know what that exactly means. 
Yeah. So the thing is coach pushing is like where, and you don't necessarily uh, like, so when a woman has an epidural, what that means is that sensation to the lower part of her body is cut off. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so do you guys, I mean, I guess I'll use a crude metaphor, but like, like, for example, how do you guys, it is actually a similar sensation that women experience during labor. Like, how do you know when it's time to push out a bowel movement? Like you feel that urge to push, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually the exact same thing for labor. When your baby gets to the right point, like when your baby gets to the point where you should be pushing them out, which is not most of labor, most of labor is a cervical dilation. But when your baby gets to that point, like you, you actually feel that urge to push. You feel it really strongly. It's like you have to go poop, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like the most satisfying poop of your life and you love the poop at the end (laughs) or something, right? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so the thing is, and it's like, yeah. And so basically uh, if you have an epidural, you're cut off from that sensation. And so the, usually the doctors and the nurses will just like, tell you when and where to push and you just kind of have to imagine and you can't really you know so it's like like, can't really lean into the feeling yeah yeah no no okay so so okay so being unmedicated having a six or seven pound baby and then also getting a midwife who's like really you know like for example like what during those last pushes for women like last birth I went to lady was totally intact and that was because like you know, like during those last few pushes, me and my assistant Anita, like we were just like basically telling her like, okay, the head's like, you know, once the head was like kind of like crowning, like we're just telling her just like stop pushing, breathe really slowly, just let the baby's head ease out on Uh her without even pushing Mm -hmm. and, you know, just giving her like time to stretch and everything like that. Okay. Um, Interesting. So like once the baby, once the baby's crowning, you don't have to keep pushing. Well, or like you don't you have, to... yeah. Go so ahead. I can't give like a one size fits all answer. Right, that. right, like, right. There are times where it's like the baby's crowning and maybe the head color is bad where you would want yeah. to keep pushing. Got but it. like, but yeah, like if you have an experienced like midwife or a doctor who can help you when the baby's head, because that's when the tearing would typically occur, right. like during as the head is emerging. Yeah, yeah. Um, you would, you know, they can use their experience in that moment to guide you to help them. And, you know, like what I've had a lot of women do, because I work, you know, obviously at home with women who are completely unmedicated, they actually reach down there, they feel their perineum, they feel the baby's head, and they literally will sometimes just guide their baby's head out and like, yeah. coach themselves on how to like, I think, slowly push the baby's head I feel out. like that's like a natural instinct that you almost have if you're, yeah. especially if you don't have an epidural. And the only reason why I asked you further to clarify that is because I feel, I feel like in movies or, you know, whatever exposure you have to watching, you know, women give birth, it's like, you think it's like this situation where it's just push, push as hard as you can the whole time. I mean, and then you stop, I guess, and kind of take breaks, but yeah, that you, so it's, it's, it's funny you say that because yeah. if we're watching, if I'm watching a movie with my husband and like, there's a childbirth scene, like, I don't even have to say or do anything. It's like, my husband just starts like rolling his eyes about like, cause yeah, it's I so know, wrong. This is, a, this is not realistic. We don't. Right. <laughs> Yeah. You don't have to say anything. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he like knows it's coming. Well, it's, I mean, but it's just like the way that like, you know, it's dramatized and TV and whatnot. And, you know, I mean. Yeah. I have some women who don't even push very much at all. It's they do, they have something called the, this is something your listeners can Google if they want to go down a rabbit hole. It's called fetal ejection reflex. Okay. Um, I have some women who want to have the, the fetal ejection reflex bars. And that's where you basically just don't push at all until your baby's right about ready to emerge wow. and it, it happens very quickly 
Well, and I, it's so interesting. I mean, I remember I was in the room for when Courtney gave birth to all of the kids, but the twins. So just, I guess, James and Lewis and birth, the birth process is actually a lot more calm for the most part. It's not true for everyone, but I mean, growing up, you just think it's like this horrendous scene with so much blood and, you know, just debris. And it's actually yeah. really peaceful. It's really peaceful. And it's yeah. not I like mean, there's this... a reason why yeah. it's considered like the happy floor in the hospital. Because right. it's like nothing's gone wrong. It's like, you know, yeah. women are just doing what their bodies are capable of doing. Right, right. Part. Yeah. Let's get into some juicy stories. Like, Ashley, yeah. like what's one of the worst emergencies well, you've ever handled? Okay. So obviously can't give a... But I would say that like, you know, probably the worst emergency I've ever handled was what's called a a shoulder dystocia, but this one, I mean, I've handled several shoulder dystocia, but this one was a really intense one that lasted, you know, like almost five minutes. The baby was totally fine. Everything was totally fine. But that was probably, I've seen some pretty serious hemorrhages too, but that five minute shoulder dystocia was definitely like the most baby slash life-threatening emergency I've handled it. But you know, we did. Can you explain what that, what a shoulder dystocia is? Yeah. And so first of all, I want to like give a little warning, like maybe if you're pregnant, like this, you can listen to this, but like some people choose not to like, like some women choose to avoid like negative stories or whatever. And that's fine. But actually like sometimes a little bit of knowledge is helpful too. Basically uh, the, the, with shoulder dystocia, this is most of the time this happens because it basically happens because, you know, the general idea with delivering a baby is that, you know, after you deliver your baby's head, that the rest of the body should come without a complication because the head is the, you know, typically the largest part. But there are situations for various reasons, maybe a large baby, maybe other things that are going on where the shoulders can get stuck, Mm -hmm. like typically Mm -hmm. on the mother's pelvis. And what that means is that, what that means is like an analogy that I use all the time when I'm talking about birth and like why we do certain things during birth that we don't do during pregnancy is like, you can think of your baby's umbilical cord, like a scuba line. And it's like your baby's like a diver. And like during the birth, at various points during the birth process, there's the opportunity for like the scuba line to become pinched, like where the baby's not getting like the, the... the blood nutrients they right, and the oxygen and yeah. so yeah and so that happens and so if the baby is stuck at that point like you're dealing with a baby who has like you know in some senses like the proverbial pinch scuba line they're not getting the you know so it's not like you know during most parts of the birth process like you can just if there's an obstruction or something like that like if, especially if you're working like midwifery care population normal healthy women at home like for example if if we have like a hang up when somebody's cervix is dilating from three to five centimeters, that's almost never, like, that's not considered an emergency. That's just like a part of the process we're waiting through, right? But uh-huh. if there's like a hang up between like the moments where the baby's head starts to emerge and then like, like, you know, if the if things get really stuck at that point, it's a, considered a serious emergency because the baby's, you know, umbilical line can be compromised. Right. And so basically we just had to do various things to help this mother deliver her baby. Her baby was fine. But yeah, that was, that's probably the biggest emergency I've seen. Wow. It sounds really scary, but it's just glad to know that everything was okay. Oh, it's just God. so impressive because yeah. like Chandler, you and neither you or I could handle no. like even one iota of this responsibility. Today, I thought maybe I was, you know, my, my wontons were catching on fire and I'm like, I don't know what to do if these catch on fire. I have no idea what to do. 
That's like literally like we could not do this. Very impressive. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's very funny. Like I didn't think I, like I when I started midwifery school, it was like, how am I going to be able to handle this? Am I going to be able to do it? But like, you know, like it's, it's interesting. Like part of it is like, you know, it's just like a, it's almost like a when I have like an emergency at a birth, it's almost just like, it's almost like you get like a new sense of calm as the emergency is happening. It's like you're, it's like the professional you takes over and you start right. like, um, right. Your, yeah, like, your mind like clears and you can just like, yeah, the adrenaline kicks in. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's also like, that's also part of the reason why, like, I don't think like I could ever be like a midwife to like someone in my own family or something like that. Cause I, d- I wouldn't necessarily be able to trust it like that part, like the calm part. I, I mean, one time I had to drive my dog to the emergency vet after hours because he ate a bunch of grapes that fell off the vine in our backyard. And I was like hyperventilating and sobbing the entire drive. So it's like, and this was after I'd been a midwife for many years, like handled a bunch of emergencies. So it was like, it was not like now I'm like this super naturally calm person in every situation. But yeah, yeah. when it's like a midwifery, you know, when it's like a professional situation, like thankfully, like I've had enough training that part of my brain can take over. Yeah. Right. Do you have any stories about like water births or like dads I don't know I just feel like I, I I don't even know where I'm going with this question or any like doulas that are like pissy like or like bug the shit out yeah, of you any- like you know, that kind of thing <laughs> yeah it's funny because it's like so I'm in a I'm in a bunch of like Facebook groups like thanks Mark for like you know different like professionals with like ch- like midwifery uh, I'm in a this group with like with a, like thousands of like labor and delivery nurses and okay. like Definitely, like, there are some doulas who are, like, not considered, like, uh, or considered, like, out of scope or out of line or, like, you know, like, a common, like, complaint, like, I've only encountered this once, is, like, a doula who, like, starts doing, like, vaginal checks or something like that, like, that's considered a big no-no, but that, that will happen from time to time. I, it doesn't happen a bunch to me, but it's definitely, like, something I've seen, like, doctors and nurses, like, complain about or, like, you know, that's considered not... Most of it, I've been pretty lucky. I think, I'm trying to think, like, except for, like, one birth I went to, and I was still student midwife at this time, so I wasn't even, like, really, like, like, most of the doulas I've worked with have been pretty, pretty helpful. Oh, that's good. Would you ever, like, go into partnership with a doula? Like, not 50-50, obviously, but, like, you know, would you ever have a doula that you recommend that you work really well with, or is that not really Oh, I definitely have, like, several doulas throughout this area that I recommend. Like, it's, uh, yeah, like, I'm one of the last remaining midwifery practices though like I part of the reason I don't have a partnership is because I'm one of the last remaining midwifery practices like I mean honestly like I practice like a dying breed of midwifery like it's called like true continuity of care it used to be the model of care for like almost all of you know and a lot of things but now it's like very you know it's like there's still a lot of midwives doing it but it's getting less common because it's not as nice for it's not as nice if you're the midwife or doctor to practice this way but it's really nice for women can Um, you explain what what that is yeah yeah Yeah, so here's the thing so the hormones involved in labor um one of the major ones is called oxytocin it's also that's also the hormone of orgasm it's like it's a hormone that has pretty strong relationship between feeling levels of privacy, feeling uninhibited because you know there's a reason why if you have like a kitty cat like they're gonna find a little box or a closet most often to give birth in. It's just because if you're a mammal, like finding Mm -hmm. a quiet private place without strangers is a pretty basic instinct as far as birth goes. Sweet to think about. Yeah. Well, the thing is like the system in this country for that is just like completely 
opposite. You know, like I work with a lot of, I've worked with a lot of women. They tell me about their past hospital births or even other, they'll, they'll literally see, you know, if you look at most group nurse and doctor practices, it's like, you'll literally see like, they, they might literally see a different doctor every time they go to a prenatal appointment and then a different doctor the day they give birth. It's totally just stranger based. And they're all just relying on just like people reading your chart. You know, the women who I work with in my practice, I not only see them for every prenatal appointment. I attend all of their births. That's something that's not done very commonly. I mean, when you hear about like, you know, when you think of like old timey birth stories, like Little House on the Prairie, it was always like the same town midwife or doctor. Right. Who yeah. Every birth. Like you knew who would attend your birth. Most women in the United States do not have that luxury today. And it's a luxury to know who attends your birth and then have a relationship with that person beforehand. In fact, that's one of the reasons some people do cesareans because they want that luxury. And that's one of the only ways you can do it. But to plan to have, but to plan to go into labor naturally, and then to also have the luxury of knowing who will attend it. That's almost the, you know, Right. I mean, and, and doctors have so many clients, like they, they can right. just like be at like at the beck and call, literally. Yeah. Like doctors, yeah. Doctors and even, you know, Patients, I mean. hospital midwives, like a lot of them just don't want to be on call because it's like, for example, I have like about in my practice, I have about two to three ladies every month typically. Mm-hmm. And I am on call because of that. Like a lot of times I'm just on call 24 seven because of that. Like, I mean, then from- theoretically call right now, we would have to stop right. this podcast. And most and- people don't want to live like that. Right. And from a personal perspective, like we know this as your sisters and as your family, like you can't always come to every holiday because you're on call. Yep. 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 But yeah, the thing is, like, that's actually one of the reasons I feel like I've had like the statistical success rate I have is because that will inhibit a woman's labor process to have a stranger. Sh- I mean, it's yeah. most women, you know, it's, you know, I'm not saying it's going to, but I'm saying like, but to have a stranger show up that day, that's not an advantage, if that makes sense. Right. And it's hearing, an advantage if you know who will be attending you. Right. And I mean, develop a relationship with that person. Hearing that it's connected to the feeling of an orgasm and at least like the the trust and the privacy that you want in those types of situations, like that totally makes sense. Like if you're not feeling safe and like you're in a comfortable space, it's not happening or it's not happening in a pleasant way, I guess, or in the most natural yeah. way. It's very, that's a really like, it's a really striking way to like crystallize that information. Yeah. And it's honestly like, it's like another it's another like something that I've like asked like talked about like like imagine like I mean obviously there's reasons this can't happen but imagine if you could get like imagine if somebody could like come to your house and like a dentist could fill a cavity in your bed like that would even take away a lot of the discomforts Mm -hmm. of like the process of getting a cavity yeah you know what I mean like you know like when you can have somebody who can come to you in your own environment and provide the medical care as needed to you that is very different than like being in a strange gown in a strange place with bright yeah. lights with strangers wandering in and out right and like you know weird socks that have grips on the edges <laughs> but okay but for some reason well i know why for me a home birth sounds very messy sounds kind of gross yeah. i'm gonna be frank but i you know i'm all for like you know embracing my womanhood but it sounds gross how does do you always have to do a water birth or like a kiddie pool or like doing it in my bed sounds weird not weird but just sounds like i said messy so what we turn through do you know what a puppy pad is oh yeah is it like 
like just like one of those like plastic on one side yeah plastic on one side absorber we the in the midwifery community they're called chucks but i mean they're basically the same thing as like puppy pads yeah we churn through those and like basically we catch all the mess with those and like yeah having we yeah this it's not like a if your house is clean when we get there it's gonna be clean when we leave yeah i mean and and just hearing the idea of it being so much more comfortable really does make it enticing because hospitals yeah. are not comfortable. Yeah. So that's what it feels to home birth and natural birth about a lot of women. It's just about like, and the thing is like, even for women who, you know, like, let's say they need a transfer of care or something like that, like doing your, as much of your labor at home as possible, just, and, and look, don't get me wrong. I'm always one of raise. I have a hundred percent respect for cesarean mothers who go through cesarean birth. But it's like the only reason I talk about preventing it is because I care about like, you know, I know the impact it makes on like, for example, if you have a cesarean, it's harder to breastfeed your baby and like deal with your baby the first six weeks of life because you're recovering from major abdominal surgery and you can't just like Mm -hmm. hold your baby like a mom who's had a vaginal birth because the wound is still can be so painful. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, it's just like making it so that like, you know, just like setting everything up so that your body has as much chance to accomplish as its natural process as possible is like why I do what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have a few more questions from our listeners. Do you care if we just kind of go through them rapid fire? Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. So regarding skincare recommendations during pregnancy, how do you deal with zits? Do you have any type of special, like this is the intersection of your expertise. Do you have any advice for this? Oh my gosh. I love to talk about whenever a woman I'm working with spontaneously asks me about like skincare recommended, because it doesn't normally come up, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I love talking about this. Stuff. Do you then recommend you, your serum? Just kidding. <laughs> uh, you know what? Honestly, like for the women I work with where I know their health history or whatever, I am not opposed to them using my serum in like second yeah. or third trimesters. You know, typically the advice is you avoid like any strong herbal or botanical things during your first trimester due to theoretical risks. But yeah, you know, for pregnancy, like as a, like, I think we talked about this in the last episode, but azelaic acid is a good pregnancy safe, like, uh, good pregnancy safe acne treatment okay you know I know this is really big with the kids on TikTok these days but I think there's actually some science behind it is liquid chlorophyll for acne okay because diet and lifestyle they do as much as some people tell you they don't they do make an impact into pregnancy so taking liquid chlorophyll that's a pregnancy safe supplement Mm -hmm. that um, you can do for acne also just like a moisturizer that is that that has ingredients like uh squalene jojoba things that mimic your skin's actual your skin's actual like your natural sebum yeah that are balancing are better than some of the more heavy or occlusive like you know moisturizers that okay you know if you're dealing with acne concerns okay okay another question i don't even really know what this means but someone said any ttc advice yeah that means trying to conceive yeah so just some of the basics you can do is just like Get your vitamin D levels checked, you and father of the baby. Vitamin D and zinc, su- zinc supplementation, some people think is health. Also, the book, Taking Charge of Your Fertility, is excellent. And that just involves like tracking your menstrual cycle, you know, using 
your temperature, like your body's basal temperature. And how does that like work? Is it like you have your normal temperature and then if you're one degree higher than that, you're ovulating or you're... Yeah, so it explains it in depth in the book. But yeah, basically you can use your body's basal temperature to track when you're ovulating. Mm -hmm. And then once you've like started to track like when you're ovulating, you can see like how long your cycles are is like the length of the luteal phase normal or like is your cycle like balanced and occurring regularly and then if you're having problems like based on that like you there are certain things that like you could try based on like whatever the issue is okay but like if you're just if you're just like don't think you have any issues you're having regular periods not on any breath control and you're just starting off like I mean basically the only thing I would do is just you know take vitamin take vitamin D. And the reason I say that is just because almost nobody gets enough vitamin D through diet. Most people need like either, you know, sun exposure, which I am not a fan of, (laughs) or vitamin D. And so taking vitamin D and then, you know, making sure you're eating foods with like natural sources of zinc. Those can be some simple things to start off with to boost your fertility. Okay. Okay. Great. Moving on to postpartum care. Any of your favorite books or reads, that type of thing. So for postpartum, the thing that I tell women to do is like, if you can save up for like one thing, like if you can save up for like one big thing, like one of the best baby shower things that you can get, or like maybe ask for this from your baby shower or whatever, if you can get like a maid service to come like maybe once a week for like the first six weeks or whatever, I don't know how fast everyone's house gets messy. That's one of the best things you can do for your postpartum. It's just just having someone help you clean. Yeah. Like having, like, I think that's one of the best things mothers can do for their mental health is just having someone else during the post. Cause as far as I'm concerned, like important to stay active during pregnancy. If you want to be, you know, 40 weeks pregnant and scrubbing the floors, I think that's great. You should do it. It's good aerobic activity. Yeah. But then once you have your baby, like, you should not be doing stuff like that for a long time. And just with the way our society works, like if the woman of the house isn't doing that, it's not getting done. It's not getting done. And that's not good for women's mental health. So that's what I think women should ask for. I love that. I feel like that needs to be a part of like the registry. It's just like, yeah, yeah, it really should be like Molly made for the first six weeks or something like that. That would be excellent. For sure. Because I think like, it's very easy to say like, oh, well, he should just do it. But ultimately, if you know, he's at work or whatever, like, it's like not that simple. Right. And it's actually, it's also taxing on your partner. Like your partner's probably going to be up with the baby as well, like taking breaks or like giving you breaks. And so like, everybody needs the extra help, you know, especially the mom that's the other thing next thing is like you know and this is like an herbal thing that I recommend to mothers in my practice so check with your own doctor and midwife before you do this but for the women that I work with like I typically recommend like a cup of lemon balm tea a day for herbal postpartum Mm. mood support that's really helpful okay and Um, so speaking of moods postpartum moods postpartum depression that's obviously very common what do you recommend how do you troubleshoot that Yeah. So in my experience, like with postpartum depression, from what I've seen, like it, a lot of times, like one trigger can be like having a disappointing, like it's where only I've seen that, but like, you know, somebody who like, you know, maybe like from what I've heard, like, you know, like I've had a lot of women come to me and say like, yeah, my last birth was really disappointing how it went. And so like, then I had postpartum depression after that. So like having a birth experience that didn't go well for you by what you know you were judging that according to that can be one problem another one reason in my own practice that I've seen a lot of women 
seem like they have postpartum mm-hmm. depression is like, you know, I, you know, cr- was, you know, taking like Medicaid insurance. And so I work with women who maybe didn't have the greatest like social, some women who are low income, who didn't have the greatest social support structure mm-hmm. in place, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe enough, enough income to, to deal with some of life stresses. Right. And postpartum depression is a lot more common then, you know, it can happen to anyone. It can yeah. happen to anyone. But like, if you have like a high degree of social support, like have like, a, you know, like another, Whatever yeah, resources, yeah. Or then another risk factor, I feel like can be like, you know, like, for example, maybe you are not low income, but like you have like three or four other young children and you have mm-hmm. a baby and you don't have somebody who's going to like care for those kids. You know, it's really hard to have your mood be good after childbirth if you just have to go right back to your normal life and you have to be yeah. like taking care of other kids, you know, just doing whatever you can to make it so that you can spend at least, you know, as much as possible of those first six weeks in bed with your baby, not having to care for other kids, yeah. cook meals, clean the house. That's the biggest, in my opinion, that's the biggest you know, preventative towards postpartum depression. Right, right. So going back to what you mentioned earlier about uh, a trigger for postpartum being that your birth experience wasn't what you wanted it to be. Obviously, there's going to be situations where you want to have a home birth, but you have to go to the hospital because of complications yeah. or whatever. How does someone, I guess, like try and make the best of that? Can they, you know, how can yeah. they? Yeah, so the first thing I want to say, if there's any woman in listening to this, like who's had a traumatic birth experience, like just know that like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened to you. That's it's awful. And the sad fact is that you're not going to be able to talk to most people about it because most people are going to say something like, well, you know, you're healthy, your baby's healthy, you know, like what, mm-hmm. it's, it's all okay. Yeah. You know, most people are going to minimize like the experience you've been through. And that's because frankly, like to a large degree in this country, like we don't care about like women's experiences. I mean, that's mm-hmm. part of like why, like, pregnant women are told to avoid so many things because it's like there's not really a nice balance of like oh maybe it will make somebody's life visible if they can't have turkey sandwiches for like 10 months it's like oh we don't care there's just like this tiny theoretical risk of listeria like just ban it you know like <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah you know so there's not really the once you're pregnant you're kind of a little bit seen as like a vessel and there's not as much like care and that extends to the birth and so mm-hmm. a lot of people will not be very careful with you or say very nice things if you've had a bad birth experience and try to process it yeah so I would just say like try to like try to find like the there's if you search like one good google search term for these moms would be like cbt techniques for birth trauma so like see and then also if you can like better help use code pop apologist better help our sponsor yeah, yeah, better help. Yeah, right. like get talking to a therapist and just processing one of the ways that like the best ways to deal with it. So okay, so the way that any traumatic experience works is that if it's traumatic, like it's going to be in your the memory is going to be more towards your brainstem in the sense that it's going to be associated with these primal emotions like fight or flight or fear, you know, maybe you were at the hospital, and some doctor or nurse was really rough with you or, you know, something happened that triggered something negative during your birth experience and you started to feel like things were out of control, you know, you were shifting towards like these primal emotions that are there for like things like keeping us safe from predators in the wild. Like, you know, they're very like primal emotions. And so a lot of it is about moving that memory from like the primitive part of your brain that is fear-based until Mm -hmm. the more like cognitive 
logical oriented parts of brain just because the thing is like for example you know i knew one mother who had like a traumatic birth experience and the thing the time when things started to go wrong for her birth was twilight early evening hours and then it was just like you know weeks later she was you know she'd be like nursing her baby like at that time and like you know the sun would start to set and she would have all these fear-based emotions kick in because it would be like triggers from the event and so it's like you know, if you can take a step back, right, that's where the CBT techniques come in. Think about like, okay, what are some of the things I associate with my negative birth experience? Like what, how are they causing yeah, me to feel right now? Talking with a trained professional, yeah. all of those sorts of things. The lemon balm tea, even, you know, like all of these things can be helpful when dealing with the traumatic memory of like a bad birth experience. And like, honestly, the way I've seen a lot of women, you know, is like, you know, a lot of women have really bad, like really, like I've had a, so many women come to me where they had like a three day induction in the hospital that was like Ugh. totally traumatic for them. Right, right. But then they have their second birth and it's a lot nicer. And it's like that, that, you know, to, to some degree giving birth again and having a better experience, that's not going to happen for everyone, but that's a way where a lot of women find healing too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That was a really beautiful answer. And I just thought what you said about how like some women are just treated like a vessel and we just don't prioritize them in that way is really important. Thank you, Ash, so much for coming on the pod and talking about all things midwifery. Lauren, do we, I don't know if we want to ask any other questions, but I think we'll probably say, I think this was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Ash was amazing. Incredible. Yeah. No. Absolutely incredible. For 12 years, so I know a little bit about it. <laughs> I just am continually so floored by how much you know about literally everything. Like, I know, I, we just listened to you talk for, you know, an hour and 20 minutes about midwifery, like, in the most eloquent, like, articulate, brilliant way. And then we also got that – we got this from you with a – I don't even know if she's still here – about skincare. She's, she, I think she's talking to somebody she's else. She's left the room. <laughs> I said, well, no, I said, oh, I said, wait till we do the dog episode. Send it to Lauren. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, we're going to, we're going to do, an, we're going to bring you back. Ash has a lot of also like wacky thoughts. So we'll do a wacky. Can Are we going to do an episode on cryptids? <laughs> I would love to hear some conspiracy theories from Ashley. I think that would be such an incredible episode. Maybe. That might be the episode that will get me canceled. Yeah, we'll put it, we'll yeah, put it behind the paywall. Shock that the cancel police wants that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ash, it's been such a pleasure. Love you so much. Love you too. Love okay, you, love Ash. You both. The best. Okay, love you. Bye. I love you. That's all for now, folks. Don't forget, give us a five-star review. Hit us up on Instagram at Apologists, and we will see you next week, live every Wednesday. Do you ever worry about running out of interesting things to say to friends when you actually get to see them? Then we've got the perfect podcast for you. I'm Eve Yohalem, and each week on Book Dreams, my co-host Julie Sternberg and I use books to explore fascinating questions, like what happened when a Harvard professor staked her reputation on an alleged gospel of Jesus's wife that turned out to be fake? And how did debut author Tom Lynn save the American Western by blowing it to bits? Are pigeons rats with wings or wonder birds? And what's the who, what, when, where, how, and especially why of books bound in human skin? 
Recent and upcoming Book Dreams highlights include conversations with Booker Prize-winning author Marlon James, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Catherine Schultz, and Merlin scholar Dr. Laura Campbell. You can listen to Book Dreams wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Emily Beerley. And I'm Jennifer Chaikin. And we're licensed marriage and family therapists, owners of The Therapy Group, and hosts of The Shrink Chicks Podcast. Every week, we bring you a new episode where we dive into therapeutic topics like inner child work, dating anxiety, family dynamics, relationships, and burnout. Making them more relatable and understandable, leaving the psycho babble behind. We address the things you've been dying to ask your therapist but don't know how. And work to help you stop shooting all over yourself with the expectations society can put on us. Tune in every Monday to Shrink Chicks on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow along and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Prepare to learn all about you because in order to grow yourself, you got to know yourself. Hey.